There's the Jacksons, Show You The Way To Go, playing on Erskine Veterans Radio. Very important day in the history of the Jacksons today. It's um, 53 years to the day since the Jacksons signed their first record deal with Motown Records. And they were only offered a year contract just to see how it went. I think it's fair to say that as things go, I think the Jacksons are reasonably successful, don't you? <laughs> to worry about that. The rest is history. Let's speak to our special guest this week on Erskine Veterans Radio because it's somebody I've been talking about um, quite a bit actually in the lead up to this, saying I was looking forward to, to hearing from him. And Bill McDowell is the head of IT and a proud Erskine Cottage resident for 25 years. Um, his military career, as you'll hear, involved being deployed to the Falkland Islands for the Falklands conflict. And, and during that conflict, he was involved in some of the biggest and most significant battles of the Falklands campaign. And after that, um, really, life took a turn and, and he was sort of, as you'll hear, looking for where life would take him next and wasn't really sure where that would be. And in the end, Erskine was the answer. And he's been here for, as I say, many years, 25 years um, as both a resident, but also head of IT and a hugely important part of the Erskine Veterans Charity and has kept everybody connected as well, particularly the last 18 months, as we know, things have been different and keeping those connections going with families has really been uh, Bill's responsibility. So let's hear from Bill now and uh, welcome him to Erskine Veterans Radio. Bill McDowell, it's great to have you along. Thanks for joining us. Just start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from and and what was your route into, into the armed forces? I'm originally from Greenock, so I'm a Greenock lad. Um, grew up there in the 60s and sort of 70s. Uh, I didn't really have any intention of joining the army initially. Um, I went up to the army recruiting office in Port Glasgow with a, a friend of mine who wanted to join up. And somehow I ended up coming away thinking, yeah, that's what I want to do as well. Um, so I joined up um, just before my 16th birthday. Uh, three weeks after my 16th birthday, I, I left home for the first time and travelled down to Surrey, to the Guards Depot, uh, to start my training as a Scots Guardsman. There are many that joined the armed forces at a young age like that, at 16. How did that form you as a person, though? Because very influential years of your youth, I suppose, aren't they? And what did that do and how did that make you into, into who you are today? I know there's a lot of controversy that flies around about um, 16 year olds um, joining the military. Um, for me, it, um, I think I would have gone down a completely different path had I stayed in Greenock and grown up without a job and so on. Um, what it what it installed into me was a, a sense of a sense of me and a sense of worth um, and a, a sense of being part of something bigger than me and and something that meant something. Um, so. I came away, I remember I'd come back home um, sort of on leaves um, to, to sort of visit my my, my family. Uh, I'd look at my old friends and my old streets and I would think, you know, I'm glad I did what I did. I'm glad for me it was a, it, it was the right move at the right time. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I loved it. I, I would do it again if I was given the opportunity. And I, I think for a, a young man or a young woman who's who's looking for a career, and just wants to find their place in, in something um, when you meet some friends that you treasure for the rest of your life, then um, the army or any of the services for that is the is the place to be. 
being in the armed forces in the early eighties, you um, there, was, there was plenty going on for for the the army, particularly um, Northern Ireland, and, and you did a tour of that. Um, you were also stationed in London, and so you were doing ceremonial duties, I suppose, like looking after Buckingham Palace. You were wearing the the scarlet tunic and the, and the bearskin and all those kind of ceremonial pomp and circumstance and probably appearing on a lot of holidaymakers' photographs at the time. But then things got serious and, and you'd seen on the news that the Falklands conflict was was brewing. And what are your memories of getting that call to be deployed to the Falklands yourself? Um, we, we were actually just on, on one of these, uh, preparing for a major general's inspection of the barracks. That was Chelsea Barracks in London. Uh, we came into into the barracks normally. I was a, I was married and had a had a son um, by then, and they, we were all called into the gymnasium. As saying the commanding officer was to address the battalion, uh, and at that point we were then told that we were to form part of five infantry brigade with the Welsh Guards and the Gurkhas, and we were to immediately proceed to Brecon Beacons in, in Wales to, I guess, sharpen up our infantry and combat skills and, and get and get get some time working as a as a brigade uh, with all the different units working together so so basically we were given like 24 hours notice to pack up and be ready to move to to Brecon. Uh, there was a there was a buzz of excitement um i guess it's it's one of those things that, that comes with with youth you're you're excited about the prospect of of the danger you're, you're excited about the prospect of actually, you know, this is what we've trained for. This is, um, but there's also a, a kind of surrealism uh, that, 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 that's there that you think this this isn't really happening, but it's, it is happening and it's, you're kind of excited that it's happening, but you've also got a, a little ball of uh, fear in the, in the pit of your stomach, uh, especially as we'd seen it developing on, on the sort of news that, that we, we knew that action was actually happening and people were actually being injured and lives were being lost. And you talk there about the excitement, um, the initial excitement, I suppose, but once you were actually reaching the Falklands, you were actually there, did the mood change? Did your feeling change towards towards things that were about to potentially happen and, and indeed did happen? Uh, the, the mood, we, we obviously went down on the um, QE2, which was um, some ship. You've got, if you're going to be down on the troop ship, then it has to be one like that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, it, was, it, it, was, it, was, it was some journey down, crossing the equator for the first time. There was a big sort of party and, sort of, you know, a lot of hilarity, um, which kind of which adds to the surrealism. <laughs> yeah. People run about the decks and shorts and things like that. And, um, but we also had to do a lot of drills, you know, where they would basically turn off the lights um, below decks, and we would have to practice getting up onto the onto the decks in case we had to sort of e- evacuate the ship. So there was lots of things like that that they sort of really brought home uh, what we were doing. And as we got closer to the Falklands and things like that, there there was um, overwatches where there was people watching, you know, with, with binoculars um, for any any incoming missiles or. Um, so they, again, then the the the. Um, the seriousness of the situation that we were heading into. So there was also this thing that, that, that this feeling that by the time we got there and landed, it would be over. Hmm. Um, especially with the Paris and Marines on the case, you know, we thought it's definitely, it's going to be over before we get there. Um, so there was, you know, 
there, there was some of that movement that we we thought we were basically by the time we got there we would be I don't know guarding prisoners or um, just securing the islands, but the the actual fighting would be finished, which obviously turned out not to be the case. And what was the reality when when you, when you got there? Well, obviously the Paris and Marines had, had had made sort of advances. Um, we we landed at Fitzroy and started um, uh, doing what the infantry does whenever it gets a piece of ground, a uh, piece of ground. Sorry, um, we we dig holes, um, we dig trenches, and then we fill them in again, and then we move on and dig some more trenches, and we carry heavy packs. So that was the that was the reality. But again, we, you know, we still get this thing. At, at the point when we landed, we still thought that we were. Not the rear guard, but the 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 action was was ahead of us, um, and then obviously we were we were moved we were moved round to to Bluff Cove, um, where we'd spent we spent about eight hours um, overnight on a flat on flat bottomed landing crafts uh, in the freezing cold, uh, and these landing crafts were getting tossed about like nobody's business because they've been flat bottomed. They would they would rise up with a wave and then come crashing down and the next wave would just come straight over the bow uh, and just slam into you and the water obviously was freezing cold and you would get a collective gasp um, from everybody on board as the water as the wave hits and that went on for say about seven hours eight hours until we landed at Bluff Cove. Um, and it wasn't like one of these scenes from a film where the 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 ramp hits the hits the beach and the guys come running off. I think by the time we'd spent that that length in the freezing cold with the, the cold water, uh, there wasn't too many of us that could have ran anywhere. <laughs> it oh, was, wow. uh, it, it, yeah, it was. I mean that that was a hard night. Um, but again, all the training that we'd, we'd done allowed us to come off those landing crafts, pick up our kit, and then carry on marching to. To where we were, our, our designated spot was for digging in. And you mentioned that you're digging in at Bluff Cove. Bluff Cove was the scene of what's ended up being the greatest loss of life among British forces in a single incident since World War Two. One fifth of British fatalities in the entire Falklands War happened in this air attack on the on the eighth of June in in 1982. And your battalion are, are dug in there on that hillside. A couple of days after we had landed at. At Bluff Cove, um, we were we were dug in um, on the sort of river that led in that fed into Bluff Cove. When the Argentinian aircrafts who, who attacked the Sir Galahad and the Sir Tristram came flying down the ravine, uh, the, the, the canyon, or whatever you call it, um, we were given an air raid warning red. Which brought the whole battalion, sort of, um, all, all, all our weapons were all manned and pointed at the sky. Uh, but unfortunately, by the time we had actually, I guess, um, got a round off, the jets were, were on us. They were too fast. They came flying straight over our positions, following the river, straight up into Bluff Cove. And then a few seconds later, we heard these massive explosions as the Sir Galahad, and well, we didn't know at that point it was a Sir Galahad and a Sir Tristram that was getting bombed. And we certainly didn't know that our friends uh, from the Welsh Guards, because I mean the Guards, especially Scots, Irish and Welsh, all trained, usually trained together. So there's a lot of the Welsh Guards that, that we all knew. Um, we didn't realise at that point that they were still on the Sir Galahad that had just been bombed. Um, and a few minutes later, the Argentinian aircraft came flying back up, following the river. 
And I guess they figured that since they travelled down that way on the way to attack the, the, the ships at anchor, that flying back would be again, again safe because there, there was no, no enemy activity as far as they were concerned. Except by the time they came back up again, um, the whole battalion plus Royal Artillery attachments were ready for them. Um, and I think that on that night, I'm sh the, the, the battalion is credited with shooting down four Argentinian aircraft. Um, myself, I was manning one of the 50 calibre Brownings. And, <coughs> excuse me, we fired everything that we had into these sort of five aircraft as they came up. And some of the aircraft were almost almost level with us um, because we're flying up. Um, and we were on we were dug in on, on the hills on so they were they, they came in or they came out pretty low which gave us uh perfect targets and there was people firing nine millimeter brownings and guys like myself we were on the 50 caliber brownings um everything went up and i'm sure there's some statistics somewhere that we fired something like eighteen thousand rounds or something like that, that were fired up at these aircraft um and they took a pounding and I'm sure that the official records say that we shot down four of them. Uh, but at that point, and then once people were shouting about that, what had happened at the down on the beach, a lot of us sort of ran down onto the beaches to see what we could do. Um, and some of the some of the sites um, coming off the. Coming off the boats, um, the survivors was um, was horrific. Just um, just horrific. The screams, the smell was um, something I don't think I'll ever forget. And then, less than a week after the Bluff Cove attack, the Scots Guards are making manoeuvres on Mount Tumbledown, which became one of the other big battles and, again, another big loss of life and another horrific night to go through, but one that ultimately really led to the, the surrender of the Argentines on, over the Falkland Islands. That was the night of the 13th and 14th of June. We lost um, nine of our comrades killed in action in the battle and 43 wounded in action. To take the to take Mount Tumble down from from the Argentinian Marines that were holding it, um, and what became probably the last full frontal bayonet assault done done by the British Army. Um, yeah, uh, I say we on the fourteenth of June from the top of Mount Tumble down, we could look down and see. Port Stanley, just in front of us. Um, and there were some severe and, losses there for, for the yeah, Argentinians that night, wasn't yeah. there? That was a big... Yes, yeah. And obviously once we'd held the, the peaks around Port Stanley, there was really nowhere for them to go. And and the, the platoon I was part of, I was part of the heavy machine gun platoon. So we were, we were, at, we were tasked with making our way into Port Stanley um, as the surrender had taken place, but they wanted some heavy machine guns um, actually in Stanley, um, obviously just in case 
things didn't go according to plan. So uh, the, there was a platoon of the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards actually marched into Port Stanley on the day of the surrender and I'm proud to say I was one of them. And having gone through the experiences that you'd gone through over the course of that week, to, to be able to do that, that must have been quite some moment for you personally. Yeah, yeah, it was. And there's a, there's a huge relief. Hmm. Not so much because you, you don't want anything. I don't think it's, it's not that you don't want anything to happen to you. There is a point, I think, when when the bullets are flying, when, when everything's, um, everything's happening around you. You see that your friends have, you see that you've lost friends and you've had other friends wounded. I think the only thing that goes through your mind now and again is that I don't mind getting hit. I just don't want it to hurt too much. I'm sure you would have rather not have had to go through the things that you had to go through. Our armed forces are always necessary and always stationed and, and ready to, to leap into to action to, to defend our interests. But knowing what you know now, what what is your feeling about about war and all that it brings? You see that war war is not pretty and it should always be the last resort because governments can declare war but it's it's men and women that they have to go and fight it. And they're the ones that ultimately have to pay the price for that war. And they pay a high price. Our special guest this week is someone who has been living and working here at Erskine for the past 25 years. Bill McDowell is head of IT and also a proud Erskine Cottage resident. What happened after the end of the Falcons conflict? The the conflict is finished. Um, Victory has been declared. Troops are returning home. And then, how did life go? We were given six weeks leave when we came back and on, on day two or day three, um, sort of went up to um, the Balham High Road where we, where we sort of lived, went into one of the supermarkets. And I could hear people talking just about silly things, normal things. You know, the fact that they keep moving the stuff about on the shelves, you can never find what you want. Just kind of basic, normal, everyday things that people moaned about. And I, I exploded literally just went completely, um, as my wife would describe, insane. Um, hurled the trolley around and I thought, I just can't take this. You know, I can't, I, I don't understand what they're talking about. You know, I've seen my friends die. Um, I've seen aeroplanes explode, all this. And you're, you're talking about something that is like normal. You know, I, to me that wasn't normal. I, I, I just couldn't associate with that that anymore. I, I felt, I felt I, I, I don't know. I felt I stepped outside a bubble, um, <clears throat> and that that um, and then I, a couple of years later, I started to have well, I, I had an injury to both my kneecaps um, on an assault course that, that never quite repaired. Um, and then in 1987, I was I was given the option of um, I was told I was no longer fit for military or for active service, but I could I could take a job in stores or I could train to be a clerk or something like that. And um, I said no, that I couldn't I couldn't do that. So uh, at this time, my battalion was stationed in Cyprus, which is where we we, we initially were, but we were sent back to the UK. 
to the military hospital at, at Woolwich in East London um, for some, some operations and some treatment on my, on my legs. And it was from there that they decided that I would be medically discharged. Um, and then I guess that's from me where I would say that my second story starts. Um, we we went through the process of, um, or I went through the process of being sort of discharged, trying to find a, a house or somewhere to live. I didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of savings. We made, in actual fact, we had no savings. I was just a guardsman. I wasn't um, um, anybody of a significant rank or anything like that. Because we couldn't find a house, we had, uh, we had a visit one day from um, one of the family's officers and somebody from the MOD who suggested that the best thing that what they could do is they would take us to um, Guildford County Court um, and, and sort of file for eviction and said, so oh, that, that way they, 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 the local authority will have to house you. And bear in mind, I'd been in the army since I was 16 years old. I was used to following whatever was was put down in front of us. So that's what we did. We were given 28 days to vacate the property. And we spent close to the next 18 months as a homeless family. Um, we went from council bed and breakfast to council bed and breakfast. Um, some Sometimes the one we woke up wasn't the one we went to bed in, in that evening. We eventually got a got a flat, a little, a little bed sit um, in, a, in one of three block of flats which were all for troubled and displaced families. And every night my wife and I would drag a chest of drawers to the, the front door because at night they would try and kick doors in. And we stayed there for about nine months. And um, that messed me up in ways I, I couldn't I couldn't describe to tell you. Um, everything I had done in the military, everything I'd done in Northern Ireland, the Falklands, everything I'd done seemed to amount to nothing. The the times I'd stood on guard at Buckingham Palace with my scarlet tunic on and bearskin meant nothing. I thought how how did I get here? What did I do that got me here? I don't understand. A couple of years earlier, they were telling me I was one of the one of the boys that put great back in Britain. How am I here? How am I living with threadbare carpets? How was me and my wife counting out two pences to walk into a shop to buy a loaf of bread? How does that happen? Um, then I remember sitting with my wife and, I was, and saying to her, you know, maybe it's me. In all honesty, maybe you would be better off without me. Um, and that was really, really hard to take. But it took us nine months and it took a very awkward conversation. Um, when I went to, one of the times we went to the, the, the council in, excuse me, <coughs> in, in West London, um, to try and see where we were on the list and what was happening. And it was only because my wife then decided to make a big thing of it. Um, that about three weeks later, um, 
we were offered a, ho a house, a three-bedroom house, which was great. Um, we turned up, and the first thing my wife done was burst into tears because of the state of it. Um, it, w it was an address where we I could maybe find a job because every time I put down where I lived, pretty much no chance of getting a job when you tell them the address because most people in, in the sort of area knew what those block of flats were were for. And then I was given an opportunity to move back move back to Greenock. Um, it was one of these um, things they have in, in, in councils where you could swap 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 houses, swap council houses to another another council area. And um, my wife who was from London, as I said before, you know, she she said, well, why don't we just move back up to Scotland? Why don't we move closer to your family? You've got your sisters and you've got your brother um, and you've got some sort of support up there, where down there it was, it, we were kind of isolated. And and that's what we did. We sort of moved back. Um, well, we moved to, we'd never actually lived in, in, in Scotland, so we moved to Greenock. Somebody suggested to me, I had to go down to the, the, the local um, DSS office, as it was then, um, to, to sort of sign on. And uh, first thing they did was offer me a, an opportunity to go to college and re-study or to study and for, for just try and give me a career. And at that point, I chose to go and study computers. Um, but while I was there, somebody, um, one of the ladies said to me, have you ever spoke to somebody from War Pensions or any, any organisation like that? And I said no, that I had literally, I had no contact with any military or anything since 1987 when I came out. I literally went straight through the cracks. Uh, so they got a lady from uh, the war pensions to come to our home and speak to us. And uh, although it was a nice, it was a nice place where we were in it in Greenock, but it wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't a particularly great area. Um, but you know, again, it was it was a home. And this lady, Mary Mary Morgan, um, who I'm eternally grateful to, asked if we'd ever heard of uh, a place called Erskine Hospital. This bit always gets me a bit emotional, so I'll try and I'll try and get it out um, as quick as I can. But, but um, so she asked me if we'd ever heard of Erskine Hospital, and I, I'd said I said no, which was which I felt quite 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 sad about, considering I live just down. Just, I, I was brought up a few miles down the road from it. So she she asked if if it'd be okay if she made a like an appointment for maybe us to go in. She explained how they'd been sort of helping veterans, you know, for many, many years, and there might be something there for us. And she came and picked us up and brought us into to Erskine, the Erskine Hospital, as it was then, to meet Colonel Bobby Steele, um, former Argyles, and Colonel Martin Gibson, former Royal Scots. And it's it's difficult to explain how I felt. Um, there was a familiarity when I, when we came when we came in. It was just like a, a an old barrack room with um, military memorabilia, military mem memorabilia hanging from the hanging from the walls, and people going about shouting, you know, "Hey, Colonel, this and Colonel that," and it was it's something I I didn't realise that I'd missed as much as I had. Really. So. After a long conversation with him, Colonel Steele said to us, look, we've got a three bedroom cottage in its own grounds. 
of an ace guard down. And it's yours if you want it. And it had been, I think, such a long time since somebody had done something that was nice, something positive. Um, and we said, of course we would. Um, so we moved into a lovely uh, detached cottage uh, and it was it was transformational. Uh, it was, I, I can't describe it, it was, I would go down, down to the hospital and so would my wife and uh, just to sit and have a coffee in the coffee room and listen to the banter. And my wife eventually, she got a, a job on the reception, did, um, which again gave her, you know, gave her something to, to be that, you know, that wasn't just like a wife and a mum, but something to be herself. And so she she got to know a lot of people and and I was kind of content. I was just going to sit up in, up in our little cottage and, I don't know, put my feet up and I think Erskine sneakily had a, had another plan. I think there was another plan afoot and the, the plan wasn't to let me sit up in the cottage and but the plan was to help me engage with the other veterans, um, which is which which I did, and it was done very it was very it was very clever, and it was done very it was it was like it was like the the Erskine stealth care system where you were you, you were getting this care provided to you, and you didn't even know that it was happening. Then I found myself getting little jobs in the in the appeal team, which was the team that was actually trying to raise the money to build the new, the new Erskine home. And then one day, um, and I was at this point, I was also going through the, the college course. And to be honest, with, I think if I hadn't been at Erskine, I think the college course had been a lot, a lot more difficult. But just having that, that place of peace to come to um, helped, helped a lot. I mean, I was never academic at school or anything like that. I I I have a condition um, similar to dyslexia. I, I always struggled going through school. I was in, in the sort of sixties. I was termed what you would probably call a, a dunce because I struggled with reading and writing and and comprehension. One day, uh, Keith Taylor, who was a former commander in the submarines, asked me if I wanted. He said, he said, come, come here, I need to show you this. And took me down into one of the training rooms and there was a, a load of compact computers and monitors and other equipment uh, sitting about or lying about still in the boxes. And he said, look, compact who's next door to us has made a kind donation of all this equipment. Um, and we don't know really what to do with it. At that point, the, the the admin staff at Erskine were still using uh, electric typewriters and so on, because this was sort of, you know, 1997, 1997, 1998. So I was still into their electronic, uh, electric typewriters. So when, when Keith asked me, you know, do you, do you know what to do with these? I said, 
I've got an idea. I said, plus I, I'm in touch with a couple of lecturers at the, the college and I'm sure we could do something. And over the, the coming months, unpacked all the computers, ran cables underneath the, the, Erskine, the Erskine Hospital um, and created the, the Erskine Network. And the rest, I guess, is history. 25 years on, the, the network doesn't just business-wise, it also helps our residents and, and their rooms connect. Um, it helps them connect with their families all over the world. It, it means that when they come into the home, they can bring all their internet equipment in with them and, and connect to our network and still still have a level of independence that they had um, from as they had in their own home. And you know, if, if there's anything that, that we can do when, when residents come into the home uh, from an IT point of view, to make their stay with us any any more enjoyable um, and make sure that the the technical side then we do it and that all started the day I came in here and Colonel Steele asked me would I like to take a cottage. Just sum up for us finally, Bill. What Erskine means to you because we can hear how life changing the whole experience has been, you know, it really has turned your life around and given life a completely new meaning. But what, what does Erskine mean to you? To me, I mean, it, people who know me at, at work, um, say, you know, he's like Mr. Erskine. Uh, to me, working at Erskine isn't really a job. It's it, For me, it goes beyond that because um, I know what Erskine is capable of um, I know, I know what it can do, and I, I know the transformation it can make to a veteran's life, and and I want to make sure that Erskine is here for another 104 years if it's needed, uh, that and it will keep providing for our for our veterans for as long as veterans need us. Well, Bill McDowell, thank you very much for sharing your story so openly and so honestly with us both today and and on Tuesday as well. Um, One final question then, want to play a song to to play us out from this. If uh, we were going to hand over the control of the music to you, Bill, what what song would you like us to play to to round off our chat? There's there's one group. Um, I'm I'm a huge Kings of Leon fan. Um, Oh, yeah. Seen them live, I just think they're. I just think they're. I think they're, they're great. Um, but but once one song especially, um, a comeback story, is always. It's a bit like me, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you keep pushing someone down, but they will keep coming back. Uh, and that's a that's a song that's just the words of it always, you know. It's the comeback story of a lifetime, is is always um, struck me. And it's it's just a it's just a song that I that I, I love. 